Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Friday, September 11th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior Editor, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. Okay, so I wasn't here last week. Uh, you guys did the show without me, but that... That means that I have a lot to talk about. I've I've tried to pare my stuff down, and I'm going to talk about some of the stuff I saw next week. Uh, but I got two two weeks worth of stuff, and I also went to Vegas. So yeah, let's start things off with what we've been doing. Uh, last week I went to Las Vegas because as of last week, the movie theaters in California were completely shut down, and I wanted to see Tenant. And a friend of mine rented out a theater at a Cinemark. Uh, um, multiplex in vegas i think it costs like 150 bucks to 200 bucks depending on your your market or area and we 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 were in there with like uh i think like six people or seven people total something like that um so i'll I'll talk about that a little bit later but uh i did get i did go to las vegas we stayed two nights at the win hotel which i think normally is like a like a four hundred or five hundred dollar a night hotel. It's like an expensive hotel, but because of the pandemic, hundred dollars a night. So, so for a hundred dollars a night, we had like a this room with like these panoramic views, and like the room had like an Alexa in it, which I've never seen before. So like you could actually like wake up in the morning and like tell. I probably shouldn't say that word because then it's going to activate other people's things if they're listening it to it not in their earphones but you could say you know the name of the thing you know turn on the lights and open the the blinds and it would do it so (laughs) it was actually pretty incredible um as for las vegas you know people are probably wondering how are things like are people following the rules are people are people just getting drunk and you know behaving how you expect uh the answer is from what i saw both uh, when I was in uh, the casino that we were in, the win, it seemed like 
everybody was wearing their masks. Everybody was following the rules at the table games. They had uh, like these plexiglass dividers, like dividing not only the players, but also the players from the dealers. So, so it was like kind of we're living in this weird dystopia. Uh, that said, when we left the casino and we were out driving, I noticed that most of the people walking on on uh, the strip were not wearing masks and were drinking and whatever. So uh, and, and we briefly went through like uh, one of the cheaper hotels, Valleys, and uh, I, I noticed that they did not have those. um they did not have the plexiglass dividers at the table games. So so it seems like the mileage may vary based on, you know, what hotel casino you go to. Uh, but I actually felt pretty safe when I was at Wynn. There was not many people there. I, I think, you know, aside uh, from getting close to, uh, you know, checking in at the check-in desk, I, I didn't get within like 15 feet of another person while we were in that uh, hotel casino. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, um, while I was there, I went to this thing. We covered it for the Ordinary Adventures YouTube channel. Uh, It's called Avengers Station. And uh, Avengers Campus was supposed to open in Disney California Adventure this summer. That did not happen. We don't know when that's happening, actually. Uh, But they have this experience in Vegas called Avengers Station, which is like this interactive exhibit. It's over by Treasure Island. And uh, I think it's like $40 a ticket or something, which it's probably not worth the $40 for a ticket. I was actually very curious, like, you know, what is this? Is this just going to be like a display of costumes and props from the movies? Because I don't want to sound jaded, but I, you know, I live in L.A., I'm lucky enough to go to a lot of uh, movie premieres and stuff like that, that they they have all that stuff on display. So I was kind of worried, oh, maybe it's just going to be all the stuff that I see on a regular basis. Uh, and the answer is no, it is a very like uh, themed, uh, you go into like these themed rooms with, yes, they do have the costumes from the movies on display, but they have like things I've never seen before. Like they had that uh, gigantic pod that um, Captain America go like becomes a super soldier in. They had uh, Vision's uh, transformation chamber. Uh, they, they had like fun little things like when you're walking in from one room to another, there was like these ants on the ground shaped in a like arrow to tell you to go this way. And like, as you stepped the ants, like ran away from your feet. Uh, it was like a projection thing. Anyways, we have this whole YouTube uh, video on this. If you want to see Avenger station, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, there's a lot of photo ops, a lot of costumes, a lot of props from the movies. At least they say it's from the movies. The guy that introduced it said all the stuff that we saw was from the movies. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I mean, it looked it looked like it was made at least by the prop master from the movies because they were like not like, you know, cheap replicas. But um, yeah. Uh, and also on my Vegas trip, uh, we stopped at some roadside attractions along the way. We went to Alien Fresh Jerky is this place in Baker, California. It started as a stand. It has grown into like it's a gigantic spacecraft uh, store, and I guess they're building an alien motel or alien hotel that's a spaceship. Um, they, uh, I don't know. We did a video on this. It's coming out uh, probably next week, some point. But uh, fun Vegas roadside attractions. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll talk about uh, other stuff I did in Vegas, including eating later on in this podcast. But um, 
But, uh, you, you know, while I was doing all this Vegas stuff, HT and Jacob launched a podcast. HT, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, this is a very exciting thing that we've been working for with working on for the past <laughs> uh, couple months. I think we've been hinting at it on this podcast too, saying we're be working on something. So Jacob and I launched a podcast called Trekking Through Time and Space, which is a watch podcast for Star Trek and Doctor Who. So I am a mega Doctor Who fan, and Jacob is a huge Star Trek fan, and we both have been wanting to t- to show each other these shows for a while. Uh, both of us convinced that we'll love these separate shows and um we decided to to turn this into a podcast for which everyone can uh listen along and maybe watch along if they want to um get into either star trek or doctor who or just revisit it all again if you're fans of both and we just launched the first episode this past tuesday which was actually the anniversary of the first airing of the premiere of star trek i can't remember the exact year jacob can you tell me it was 1966 and as we discuss in the show it was premiere of the first episode aired but not the pilot so star trek's confusing sometimes as ht learned yes and so is doctor who um but they're both really different but very similar shows in some kinds of ways and i'm really excited about this about this podcast um what do you have anything we want to add jacob yeah, we've banked a few of them already. Uh, we've been watching ahead and, and recording ahead and having a great time. If you enjoy listening to me and HT talk on the show, you should definitely give it a shot. Uh, Star Trek is streaming everywhere. It's on CBS All Access. It's on Netflix. It's on Amazon. And you should definitely follow along. Doctor Who is on HBO Max. And a lot of people have already messaged me saying, hey, I've never seen either show or I've seen Trek or I've seen Who and I want to watch the other one. So a lot of people are using this as an opportunity to catch up on one show or even both shows. So if you want to, you know, play along, watch along, this this show is for you. We want those people to go on this journey with us. And I'm and I'll just say that it's been a real learning experience learning how to, you know, co-host a podcast, co-create a podcast, get one <laughs> launched and approved. And I will say I'll say this much. I'm proud of our first episode and our second one and so on, but I'll say that HT and I have found a groove and I genuinely think that the show gets better as it goes along. So, you know, definitely stick with it. If you, if you, if you like what you hear in the first episode, I promise you, uh, I think the show is getting really good. Remember our first episode of this podcast? It was, it was not good. So (laughs) everything gets better over time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, HT and I like are listening back to our early episodes for, for the editing process. And I'm not, I'm not like, Oh, this is unlistenable. I'm just texting. You're going, I'm texting. You're saying, wow, we, we've gotten a lot better. Like we found a rhythm. And so it's, it's my long winded way of saying that like Dr. Who and Star Trek, our show gets better the longer you stick with it. You, you know, neither of us took this advice, but I've heard many successful podcasters say that you should record like four or five episodes that you never release before you actually go back and record like the actual pilot that you actually release. It's <laughs> so. pro- probably a smart idea. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> so yeah, yeah we, we're available on Spotify and iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now. Uh, last time I checked, we're still uh, pending approval on Google Play. But, you know, all the usual suspects were there. And if you listen to the show and if you want to watch both shows, you know, write us in. We're on Twitter. We have an email. What's our email address for the show, HD? That's a good question, and I have it um, <laughs> somewhere. Uh, it's I think it's trekking time. Um, hold on, I'm gonna look this up because I definitely have it on hand somewhere. Uh, it's called trekking time podcast at gmail.com. 
Yeah, so if you listen to the show and you want to play along, uh, watch along, have any questions about how to prepare for or where you can watch the shows, email us. We are eager to get a community going of people who are watching with us. So are you guys like watching in chronological order? We're starting with, oh, sorry, you go ahead, HDL. Okay, so uh, like with Star Trek, how we have sort of um, caveats for what we're watching first, um, the first aired episode versus the actual pilot versus what is chronologically first, we're doing the modern day revival of Doctor Who first because with classic who there are large large gaps of episodes missing because of bad archiving practices from the BBC. They deleted like half of the um, second Doctor's era. Um, and uh, it's better for to it, Doctor Who, um, the modern revival actually is like a acts like a soft reboot and is a good starting point for anyone who is intimidated by the long history of the show. Yeah, I love how HT says deleted, but it probably was erased on tapes or right. recorded. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, it just shows the, the, the age, your age. <laughs> yeah, and I, I gave HT the opportunity. Do you want to start with original series Trek from the 60s or the next generation you know, from the 80s and 90s? And she chose original series. I'm glad she did because uh, Doctor Who revival and original series are proving to be strange, strange bedfellows. And I did the math and when you counter in all of Star Trek and all of Doctor Who, including the old stuff from the 60s, there are roughly the same number of episodes. So H.C. and I are going to be at this for a long, long time. How many episodes is that? Do uh, you even a, know? About a thousand, roughly. Yep. Wow. <laughs> a thousand episodes. You've committed to a thousand episode podcast. Yeah. I think we'll probably check in after... According to our Google Doc, we will uh, reach the end of Next Generation around the same time we reach the end of the Doctor Who uh, revival plus Torchwood. And at that point, <laughs> the question is, do we keep trekking forward with more Star Trek or and go double back to original Who? But, you know, that's still like three years away. So HG and I still have our work <laughs> cut out for us. Wow, that seems like a lot. Um, also, HG, you moved back to New York. I am. I didn't move back. I was only gone temporarily. But yes, I'm back in New York. Um, I had a lot of and now surrounded by lots of dead plants and packages. And uh, yeah, so that's just my update as I'm back here in my apartment. I had some like business to attend to. So back in the city now that the and the cases have gone down too. So it's a a little bit my parents were able to rest easier when I told them I wanted to head back. I know when you left, it was kind of scary. Like, going out and it was i don't know the public transportation situation was kind of iffy like is it is it better now it's better but we're i'm still acting very cautiously and um i actually haven't left my apartment yet either because uh new york is now requiring two week quarantines for a number of states one of which is virginia so i'm just being safe even though i didn't go out much back in virginia either <laughs> and uh you know staying inside and trying to be a good citizen Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read Made Men, the story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. Uh, and it's, uh, as you can tell from the title, it's all about Goodfellas. Um, and Goodfellas, I, I think I said this before, but Goodfellas is, is my my number one movie. It's my all-time favorite film. I, I must have rewatched it hundreds and hundreds of times so i i know this movie you know front and back I, I can recite it in my sleep uh so i was very curious to read this and it, it's a great read it's it, it gives a lot of insight into the film um uh he does the author does this thing where 
the first few chapters are about pre-production and then he literally goes through the entire movie scene by scene and breaks down literally every single scene in the movie and you know the story behind the scene and uh, you know, what what filming was like to make that scene and and so on so it's a really you know if you love goodfellas or if you just love reading about filmmaking this is this is a a great book um to check out it, it's uh, i i i highly recommend it okay cool let's move on to what we've been watching uh, Jacob and Nisha, do you want to talk about Star Trek and Doctor Who? Like, how is this going to work on this podcast? Because you've been watching. Well, we are going to recap <laughs> our entire first episode here. <laughs> I, I will say that if you're a Trek fan who's hesitant about who, I think you sh- you should give it a shot and vice versa, because both shows are more alike than you think they are. And I'll say I warmed the who- to Who faster than I thought I would. And for more details, you should listen to the podcast. And okay. I, I will say the same about Star Trek. More, I was intimidated by Star Trek just because I don't usually, I don't like to, I don't really have a head for lots of lore and lots of uh, what I kind of con- pre- preconceive Star Trek to be. Uh, but it's much more fun and a little bit silly than it puts a face on to be. Okay. Um Okay, here thus begins my recap of a lot of all the stuff I've been watching in the last two weeks, or some of the stuff I've been watching in the last two weeks. Uh, as I mentioned before, I went to Las Vegas to see Tenant, and we did one of those watch parties. And uh, I'm going to reiterate what Chris said. It was kind of weird to be in a movie theater again. They have this like pre-roll showing you all the safety measures that they take, where they're like spraying down all these recliners with like this, these chemicals and stuff like that. I didn't smell it, but Kitra said that throughout the movie, she could smell the chemicals around her. So I don't know. Take that for whatever it's worth. Um, uh, as for Christopher Nolan's tenant, I'm not going to go into any spoilers whatsoever. I'm going to try to keep this as spoiler free as possible. Cause I know a big, like a huge part of our audience have not, had a chance to see this movie yet uh but i will say that i the concept of this movie is incredible the the action sequences are a lot of fun unfortunately the 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 score which is by the guy that did the the mandalorian score is is great and although sometimes it has like shades of the con simmer um but it, it uh Unfortunately, this movie is way overcomplicated. The story is way overcomplicated. And I saw it in a movie theater, I think, with seven people. And I don't think anybody walked out of that screening with quite like they didn't understand stuff. Like they were, they, <laughs> uh, Kitra was like totally baffled at what was going on. Uh, it's not the easiest movie to understand. Uh, I, I, I'll say I have a good grasp on it. And even after, I someone sent me a thing like uh, uh, someone's video and they were pointing out stuff that I was like, oh, I totally didn't get that at all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Tenet, um, I think it's worth seeing because of the filmmaking. But I, I don't know, like, I think Nolan needs a co-screenwriter that is able to take his ideas and concepts, which are brilliant in simplifying them a little bit. I'm not saying that you need to like make things dumb. 
Uh, you don't need to over explain things, but like, I, I I think a significant amount of people seeing this movie will not understand half of what's going on. So, uh, I don't know. Th- 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 that's what I think of Tenet. So I, I'd give it like a like seven out of ten. Um, what else did I see? Oh, I rented this movie uh, for six dollars. I think it was on iTunes. You can rent it anywhere. I think Amazon, all those services. It's called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. And this is a documentary. Um, This is about, it follows David Arquette today, or, you know, in the last year or so. And uh, for those of you who don't know, David Arquette is an actor who is probably most famous for being in the Scream movies. Uh, He was, um, (laughs) at the peak of his fame, he got involved in this wrestling movie called, um, oh my God, I don't have it in front of me. Brad, I feel like you would know what the wrestling movie was called. It's not No Holds Barred. It's it's called Ready to Rumble. Ready to Rumble. Yeah. How can you forget that movie, Ben? Ready to Rumble. Uh, <laughs> um, it was such a bad movie. But to promote that movie, uh, he made some appearances on WCW because WCW was a big part of that movie. Uh, WCW was at the time in this Monday night wars with WWF, the competing wrestling organization. And they were both, they both had a competing show on Monday nights and both of them were live and both of them were trying to outdo each other. It it, it was great as a wrestling fan because it was like the definition of how competition makes for better product for people because every week they were trying to like out do the other. Um, that said, it also led to some bad things. And w- one of those bad things was to promote uh, this movie. David Arquette appeared on wrestling, um, which is not unusual. I should say like, you know, Mike Tyson appeared at WrestleMania once as a referee. Uh, Andy Kaufman had this like, uh, feud with Jerry the King Lawler in Memphis. There's a whole documentary on that, which I highly recommend. Uh, Donald Trump appeared at WrestleMania and I think uh, either got beat up by Vince McMahon or beat up Vince McMahon. One of the two things. But usually when a, when a celebrity appears in wrestling, it is usually like, you know, a very minor thing. And it's to it helps promote something that that celebrity is doing. And it also gives uh what they call in the wrestling business, the rub to this wrestler. So they get the rub of the celebrity interacting with them. So they become, you know, more popular or more mainstream. Um, So David Arquette was on WCW and he, in a turn of, in a series of events, he ended up winning the WCW world championship. Um, This is considered one of the worst moments in pro wrestling history by many fans. Uh, it's to give you an idea at the time, I think there were like maybe 40 people in the history of WCW that had held that championship. It was one of those things that at some points there was nobody won that a person that held that belt held it for years. So that said, it was a mockery of pro wrestling, which everybody realizes it's not real. Everybody realizes it's sports entertainment, even at this period in time. Um, but it was just kind of a mockery of it. And uh, David Arquette, his career is 
I mean, obviously not. It's kind of gone downhill since the screen movies. Uh, he married Courtney Cox and then divorced Courtney Cox. Um, he's now with another woman who looks like a younger Courtney Cox, which is kind of creepy. But anyways, the um, he uh, he is now like at a period in his life where like, I think there's a point where he's like driving and he's talking to the interviewer and he's like, I go to auditions every week and I get nothing. He's like, imagine if you were going to job interviews for 10 years every week and just getting rejection after rejection after rejection. Like it's a very sad uh, story for him. And uh, he gets all this. He's a pro wrestling fan. That's one of the reasons why he wanted to be part of that WCW thing. And uh Okay, now this is a big preamble to what this is. This documentary follows like he wants to redeem himself to wrestling fans because he gets all this crap from wrestling fans for being part of the one of the worst moments in wrestling history. And he wants to redeem himself uh, by getting back into wrestling and prove that he can be a wrestler and prove that, uh, you know, he actually cares about the business. And it's this documentary follows his journey i think it's over the course of like a year or two uh david arquette has had a uh, he's an alcoholic he's battled alcohol and uh he at the at the point that this picks up i think he's uh sober he's had a heart attack which um you know uh is kind of scary but uh, you know he puts himself into this thing and at one point he's like he goes to try to wrestle at like one of these independent wrestling events it's like a gymnasium or something and they don't even want him they don't want him to be involved because you know because of that situation like like they, they're afraid that people are going to freak out and people whatever so he ends up like wrestling at these backyard wrestling matches which are like in people's backyards he he goes to the to mexico and is like trying to get lucha libres to train him uh wrestling is big in in mexico but at one point he's like wrestling literally wrestling in a in the middle of a like intersection on the street uh trying to you know get money <laughs> it, it's uh some of the stuff i'm not sure if it's some of the stuff i'm pretty sure it's a a show for the documentary uh i'm not gonna be uh too spoiler here but he does work his way up and there is a point in this documentary where there is a a dramatic real injury that happens to him in the ring. It, I don't know. This, this whole thing is very sad. His wife is, you know, either the most supportive or the most complicit woman in the world. Uh, because, like, this guy should not, at this age, after a heart attack, be wrestling in the ring. Uh, and he clearly, I don't know, is not... He, he, I don't know. At the end of the movie, I think the movie wants to, you know, make you think that like he's like redeemed himself. I, I don't think he has what it takes to be a wrestler. Uh, I, I like David Arquette. I like him as a person. I like him as an actor. I can't wait to see him uh, in the, the new Scream movie. But this is very sad. This is a really sad movie. But at the same time, it's really compelling. So I wanted to really recommend this movie to, to everybody listening. This is you cannot kill David Arquette, even if you don't like pro wrestling at all. Uh, Ketra does not watch pro wrestling. She was she she said it was a great movie. Uh, it's on premium VOD right now. 
uh, or I guess just normal VOD because it's not like a premium price. Um, okay, uh, I'll try to be quick with some of the other stuff I saw. I saw Bill and Ted face the music. I know everybody has pretty much everybody has already talked about this on uh, the podcast. I paid uh, twenty dollars to rent it, uh, even though I could have owned it for five dollars more. Um, <laughs> this movie and everything considered should not work. This movie, like somehow. I don't know. I don't know how, but it is like just so much fun. Uh, I love how it's made. It made it, like it feels like it's a movie from the '90s, and there's really no attempt to make it feel modern in any way. It's like very cartoony. Uh, the evil robot robot guy. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but he's a scene stealer, as people have mentioned. Uh, there's a bunch of cameos, which I thought I wasn't going to be on board for when they first appeared, and then I was on board for. Uh, it's cheesy, yes, but um, I don't know. I think this movie is perfectly the movie we need right now. So I highly recommend you also see Bill and Ted Face the Music and that you can rent on premium VOD anywhere. Uh, also, last week, uh, David Blaine had a new special. It was on YouTube. It was called David Blaine's Ascension. This is where he... It was, one, it was not a magic special. It was a special where... He was attempting to fly with balloons, uh, balloons uh, into the sky, and then uh, strap himself, uh, strap on, what, what, fly with balloons into the sky. I think it's like uh, twenty five hundred feet, very high. Then he straps on a skydiving uh, suit, and then. Take, goes down to the ground. The, the special was going to be broadcast live on YouTube. Uh, um, it got postponed a couple days because of actual winds and stuff like that. It got moved from New York to some other place in the country. It, it 12 million people watched. It broke the live stream record on YouTube. Uh, you can watch the whole thing. I think there's also a highlights thing. The whole special is like three hours long and it's all like live with some video packages. Um, it, it's he he had to become a commercial balloon pilot and he had to take 500 skydive jumps just to be able to do this. Uh, the, the interesting thing here, and I think what people who aren't interested in David Blaine might be interested in, is it's just so interesting to see all the experts that have come together to make this possible and to make it a, be a safe thing and how like they're explaining while they're hooking things up and stuff. Uh, how the camera se- uh, system on the rig uh, is relaying information to an airplane circling, sending it back to the ground. And he has like, you know, it's a, uh, it's hosted by Marquise Brown, who's a YouTube tech guy. I watch uh, it, it's fascinating to hear all about the prep and to watch him get suited up and see everything involved. Uh, it, I think it probably is probably better to watch live because you don't know the outcome, but once you know the outcome, it becomes a little less dramatic. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed it. David Blaine's Ascension on YouTube. Um, the other big thing I wanted to recommend is The Vow. This is a documentary series on HBO Max, and this is about Nexium. But okay, this is a documentary series on HBO Max. It's about Nexium, which was like the sex cult um, that. It, very, there's very much like kind of like parallels to Scientology. Uh, it, it made huge news because um, Allison Mack, who was an actress, who was a uh, star of the TV show Smallville. She was like kind of like 
the head of like this like sex cult thing. Um, that this documentary series is hugely compelling. Um, the first episode is showing you how someone gets sucked into a cult and typically i feel like documentaries show highly susceptible people being taken advantage of and don't really kind of like explain how uh i, I guess that's probably putting it badly and that's probably looking down on some, some kind of people I'm, I'm not trying to say that i'm trying to say like um this i think kind of shows you like how you might actually be convinced to join this organization. Like, it, it, like it's the first time that like, like I've, I've uh, felt and related to stories of people who have joined Scientology, but I've never kind of been like, Oh, I get why they joined. If that makes sense. And this, it, like it made, made it make sense for me. Like, especially with uh, like this organization, um, I'm shocked at how much access to footage they have. This isn't just like a talking head thing. Like they have a ton of footage. Um, the guy that um, he made one of the biggest grossing documentaries of all time. Like what the bleep do you know? Or something like that. He got sucked into this thing. And uh, because he's a documentary filmmaker and he got sucked into it for like 12 years or something like that. Uh, he, because he was a filmmaker, he was like filming a lot of stuff. And he also had a tendency to record every single phone conversation that he had. So there's just like a ton of good footage here. There's a, a ton of uh, like real conversations that you're getting. Uh, there is also some good reenactment footage. Uh, I do think that it is a little weird because they don't distinguish between them. There's sometimes that there's a reenactment. And I'm like, is this using audio that's real or is this, you know, uh, it's, it's a little confusing. Um, but I uh, highly recommend this. I'm three episodes in. I think this is a nine episode series. Like a lot of these like documentary series about these like uh, things. I, I feel like it's probably not going to be compelling for nine whole episodes. It might need less. But I'm telling you from the first three episodes, I'm like, I'm not feeling like it's like dragging things out. It's really interesting and compelling stuff. And so that's the vow on HBO Max. And uh, I got two two last things to talk about. I know I've been going along here, guys. Um, Brad, a couple weeks ago, talked about two shows on Netflix, the, the first of which is High Score. This is a limited series. Um, it's about uh, the history of video games. It, it's very good. I, I was afraid this was going to be kind of like talking heads and B-roll overload. But this is retelling like famous stories behind how these like early days of video games like spawned it's um it's it's kind of presented in a way that like every story is kind of set up as like a big reveal like it's like you know you're following this guy and he's trying to create a video game and blah 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 he's trying to figure something out and he's eating a pizza and he picks up a slice and he's eating the pizza and he looks down at the pizza and he's like that's how he came up with the idea of making Pac-Man that shape. Like, so it's always like, that's how it's like every story is presented of like, you're not like, Oh, right now we're going to learn how this happened. It's like, you're it's, I guess like the black mirror 
kind of approach of you discovering it. Um, it's it has like some uh, also some very um, it has the classic stories that you've probably heard if you're a big video gamer. It has some stuff I haven't heard, but it's also interesting. They have like some fringe stories like they talk to like the guy who created all the classic sounds for like the Nintendo classics. Like he's the guy that's responsible for like the the sounds on Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong. Uh, we learned the story of like what it was like to be a Nintendo game counselor or the first Nintendo World Championship or how Kirby got his name, which is actually kind of interesting. Uh, so, yeah. Anyways, I would recommend this highly. Uh, I was afraid that this was going to be kind of like the the toys that made us or the movies that made us that which kind of annoys me with the the way that is produced uh this is this is really good uh it's really enjoyable at least the first few episodes are and the other thing i watched was also a something brad mentioned that was bay watch that's b-a-e watch and this is a show on netflix uh brad mentioned that he, he did not recommend this whatsoever he told me not to watch it but the concept sounded so interesting that i had to like give it a chance and this is about um, a couple who have just kind of uh, met and they they get flown to this resort. And meanwhile, they are being watched by their family members the whole way, including, I guess, sex and stuff like that. <laughs> um, on one hand, it's creepy that the parents are like watching. But on the other hand it really seems like they know for the most part that there's cameras recording them at most times, because like, like there's one point they're like making out in a uh, jacuzzi tub, but they have microphones on them. Like they have these like microphones along them, their necks. So they must know that they're being filmed at that moment or else they would have took the microphones off. So, they knew that people would probably eventually see this footage. So I'm not sure if there's really any stakes here. Uh, I'm also skeptical of how much of this is real and how much of this is like orchestrated by the producers. Because at one point they check into this like villa and they go out for the night and uh, the mom is going through uh, the boyfriend's luggage and she finds some sex toys and it's just like normally picking them up and like doing things with them. And I'm like, if I found like sex toys in someone's bags, I would like be like, ew. And like be touching it with like, you know, a stick or something like, I don't know. It, it seems like almost like there was a producer there being like, pick it up and say some stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It, it, it feels very reality TV show in a bad way. There's also a moment later where the couple is, is making out in front of this mirror. They're like looking at themselves in the mirror and they're making out. And on the other side of the mirror, it's a two way mirror are the family. And they're watching them as they're like making out. And I can't imagine that. Like they just like decided to make out in front of the mirror. I feel like the producers had to be like, why don't you go make out in front of that mirror over there so that they could get the shot. I don't know. This whole show is very trashy, and I think Brad is right. Like nobody should watch this. So, this this is your second warning. Don't watch. They watch. I only watched one episode. So, uh, uh, Chris, what have you been watching? 
Uh, I watched Mulan, which is fine. Although in <laughs> the recent days since I watched it, all this you know stuff came out. You know, just about uh, Disney thanking certain people and it just it's made me like not even want to talk about the movie but i i watched it it's fine i think it's really stupid that they gave mulan like superpowers like i don't understand why they did that because that's not in the original and part of the original is about her you know learning to be herself and fight for herself and this movie is about oh she just has superpowers and that just seemed Really she, she has metachlorians. Yes. She's a Jedi. It's just, it seemed very stupid to me, but I mean, it's, it's a, it's a handsomely made film. I can't, you know, it looks fine. Everyone in it is fine. I didn't, you know, I didn't hate it, but I probably will never ever watch it again. Um, what else? Uh, I watched the devil all the time, which I have a review up on the site today. And, most critics seem to hate this movie a lot. So I'm in the minority in that I gave it a positive review. Uh, this is that movie that has pretty much everyone in it. Uh, Robert Pattinson is in it. Tom Holland is in it. Sebastian Stan is in it. Uh, Riley Kehoe, Jason Clark, uh, the list goes on and on. And it's a very uh, nasty, brutal Southern Gothic sort of film. And I definitely know it's not going to be for everyone, but uh, I read the book, so I was I was looking forward to it, and um, I think the movie did a, a good job adapting the book. So uh, again, your your mileage may vary. Uh, I also watched David Byrne's American Utopia, which is part of TIFF because I'm covering TIFF remotely this year because uh, the world is ending, and um, it was good. I'm not a big fan of David Byrne's music. David Byrne is, of course, the the lead singer of of. Uh, the talking heads and he has a, a solo career and you know, I, I like some of his songs, but I, I'm not a big fan overall. So I didn't know really what to expect with this, but this is great. Um, it's, it's a film version of a stage show he did, uh, at, but Spike Lee directed it. And, you know, I, I really loved the Hamilton movie on Disney plus, you know, I, I loved it. I've watched it multiple times. I have nothing against it, but watching this, it really, sh- demonstrates just how great a filmmaker Spike Lee is because, you know, this just like Hamilton is, is a film stage play, but this thing just, it looks so much better. Um, uh, you know, when I was writing the review, I looked up how it was made and all this stuff. And he had like a 11 person camera crew and, uh, you know, all these people just working on it. And as a result, the movie is just constantly just, cutting around uh, like it never settles on one static shot which i feel like the the hamilton movie does a lot like the hamilton movie has close-ups and if here and there but a lot of times it's sort of like this wide shot of the stage and this this movie uh, is, is constantly just cutting to different angles and the camera is always moving around and i was just incredibly impressed with how this looks compared to that uh, and and content wise, it's just a it's a great uh, movie altogether. Um, you know, even if, even if you don't like all the songs, which I didn't, I think the movie is so uh, energetic and so well done that I you know I uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And finally, I watched One Night in Miami, which is another TIFF movie, and this is the the feature directorial debut of Regina King, uh, who of course is an actress, and she's also directed a bunch of TV, but this is her first movie and this was great um this is based 
on a true story of how one night uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown all got together to celebrate uh, Muhammad Ali becoming the heavyweight champ after he he uh, he won that that title. And while that that after party that celebration is true, this is sort of a fictional account of that story, and it's just about these four guys just hanging out in a, a motel room, just talking to each other. And I know that sounds very stagey and this is indeed based on a stage play, but it, it's so well made. Regina King does a really good job just keeping it from seeing, seeming, you know, like a filmed play and the cast, uh, all, all four of the leads are, are so good in their respective roles. So uh, this is already getting a lot of um, like award season buzz. And I don't, I don't usually tend to, jump into that conversation because I don't really care that much, but I, I definitely could see this ending up being part of the award season conversation. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I did a sort of a double feature of, uh, based around the theme of obsession. Uh, and this was unintentional, but um, my wife and I watched Memento and Zodiac pretty close to not, not back to back in the same night, but maybe like one day apart or two days apart or something. And um, I had not seen Memento in a long, long time, but um, you know, because I don't plan on seeing Tenet anytime soon, uh, I sort of, just missing the experience of watching a Christopher Nolan movie. And I've seen the dark Knight and, and some of his more recent stuff, um, you know, way more uh, often than I have uh, his earlier work. So, um, you know, moving back to Florida, my parents gave me some DVDs that, uh, that I had bought, you know, when I was a teenager and had left at their house and Memento was one of those. And I, I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. So, um, yeah, we just, we put this movie on and man, it still holds up. It's, it's really, really good. I wrote about it, uh, for the quarantine stream column on the site. Um, you know, obviously everybody talks about Christopher Nolan's sort of like relationship with time, but I think that that theme of obsession and, and identity, especially in Memento is, um, you know, th those two ideas come up over and over and over again in Nolan's work. And I was struck by, by that, you know, more than anything else, uh, on this rewatch, you know, a lot of times, like the first two times probably that I watched Memento, I was really just um, you know, so focused and so zeroed in on tracking the timeline and, you know, cause the movie has such a unique structure um, and that sort of like dominated my attention. But now that I, you know, have, have uh, now that I know what happens and, and um, you know, I'm not going to get like sucker punched by the, <laughs> by the ending or, you know, now that I am familiar with the, uh, the structure of it, it sort of allowed me to look at you know, and pay closer atten attention to some of the other things that the movie has uh, on its mind. So um, it's very, very good. You can you can stream Memento on IMDb TV right now if you're interested in doing that. And then uh, Zodiac, obviously another huge movie uh, movie about obsession. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr.'s characters uh, who, who work for a San Francisco newspaper and are trying to track down the Zodiac killer, um, both sort of like essentially they're they're entire lives become you know subsumed by by this quest for uh figuring out who the hell this guy was and um you know the the zodiac killer is uh is like one of the most famous like unsolved uh uh serial murderer situations in history so it's it's not a spoiler to say that like they don't find the actual killer by the end of the movie but the, the film sort of like uh tips its hat to like thinking okay maybe maybe we do like um, among all of these suspects there is one that um that sort of 
stood out a little bit more than the others, even though I don't know if there's, uh, if that's been like definitively proven yet, but um, man, it's just a really, really solid movie. And it made me miss David Fincher stuff. And I'm glad that uh, we're going to get a new David Fincher movie later this year with Mank. So um, it's been so long since, since what Gone Girl was Gone Girl, his most recent movie that was in 2014 or something. Right. So it's, I mean, it's been six years. Is that, is that correct? Am I, am I missing one? I, um, I mean, he, he did he did like Mindhunter, but that's not a movie. But yeah, Gone Girl is the last uh, feature, I believe. Yeah, man. And and Mindhunter is great, too, um, and, and definitely touches on a lot of these same, you know, same concepts and themes and stuff like that. But um, but man, just like there's something about a David Fincher movie that um, <laughs> I mean, it's like the most basic bro take of all time. But he is a really <laughs> great director. So, uh, yes, Zodiac is uh, very, very good. Um, the Nice Guys. I, I rewatched The Nice Guys, and uh, I don't think I'd seen this since it came out in 2016. But man, I love this movie. Shane Black um, co-wrote and directed this film. Uh, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling are the two uh, leads of it, and they're both so, so good in this, um, especially having recently watched Russell Crowe in uh, Master and Commander and, and just like sort of falling in love with that version of of him as a performer and as a, uh, a movie star, um, you know, 20 years apart or 15 years apart or whatever, like watching uh, him as this sort of like schlubby, um, you know, much more comedic character in the nice guys was a a really fun bit of whiplash for me. And Ryan Gosling, man, I I really don't think he gets enough credit uh, as, as an act, as a comedic actor, especially like everybody knows that he, he can bring it when it comes to drama, but um this was one of the only movies in, in recent memory where he's been allowed to actually have a lot of fun. And it really is super, super enjoyable to watch him. Um, the script is so funny too. It's, it's so great. There's, you know, it, it's like a classic noir stuff, like talking about uh, these themes that, that these filmmakers are, are obsessed with. Um, the nice guys is very much in the Shane Black uh, wheelhouse of, um, you know, corruption and the seedy underbelly uh, of of society and all the kind of stuff that shows up in everything from, you know, Lethal Weapon to like tons of the stuff that he's made as a filmmaker. So um, anyway, I, I feel like The Nice Guys uh, sort of came and went at the time when it came out in 2016. And, and um, it doesn't have the reputation that I think it should that it should have. So I would definitely recommend that people rewatch that if you can, uh, if you have the opportunity. It's it's definitely worth your time and um, is is one of my favorite Shane Black movies right up there with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So um, very, very good stuff. Uh, I also watched Arsène Lupin. I'm probably mispronouncing that because I believe it's a a French character. uh, And that's the title of this movie. It came out in 1932 and it starred John Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore as uh, one of them, uh, John Barrymore plays Lupin, who is the this gentleman thief character who was at the center of uh, the castle of Cagliostro, which is Miyazaki's first feature film. Uh, I talked about that and actually wrote about it for the quarantine stream a long time ago when this whole pandemic thing first started really. Um, And I love that movie. It's still available on Netflix. I would definitely recommend watching the castle of Cagliostro over Arsene Lupin, this, this 1932 live action feature uh, because Miyazaki's take on the character is so much more enjoyable. This movie is based on a stage play and um, definitely feels like it. it. It doesn't have the sort of like snappy, uh, the dialogue is not as snappy as, as I would have hoped um, for a character that is so, uh, you know, supposed to be fun and, and witty and uh, slick and a womanizer and all that kind of stuff. Um, the 
relationship between the the Barrymore brothers on screen. Um, John Barrymore plays Lupin and uh, Lionel Barrymore, who I know best from his work in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, plays this detective who's all, who's trying to uh, find this this uh, infamous thief. Um, it, their relationship is fine, but that's, and that's like, I guess that, that's the big draw of this movie is that it was the first time that the Barrymore brothers were in uh, the same movie together. Um, but there's just not really much to recommend about this film, uh, which is sad because I, I, you know, my introduction to that character uh, in Castle of Cagliostro was so like such a great experience for me um, that I was hoping that like all movies about this character would would maybe have a similar vibe, and this one definitely does not have that. So, Ben, uh, yes, I have some recommendations for you. Oh, hit me, please. So Lupin the Third, which the feature film that you saw is sort of like the first feature film outing of, is actually a, a character who's a descendant of Arsène Lupin. And uh, he's um, created in like th- this Japanese manga by uh, an author named Mo- Monkey Punch. And he's like a huge character in Japan. He's had several TV shows, uh, feature films, mostly anime. There's, I think... I don't think it's a live live action one coming, but there's like a CG animated version coming soon. And the um, feature film was actually a sequel or continuation of the TV series Lupin the Third that Miyazaki worked on um, before making the leap to feature filmmaking. He and his longtime collaborator Isao Takahata uh, took over the series from the first director, um, I can't remember his name, uh, Masaki Osumi. And I watched it recently. You can watch it, uh, I think, on Crunchyroll for free. And I think it's available somewhere else to stream as well. But it's really interesting because halfway through this series, there's a clear shift from Osumi's direction, which is much darker and more sort of exploitation, uh, James Bond-esque, and to what you eventually see Miyazaki do with his feature film, which is much more whimsical and lighthearted. And it's kind of, it's in like more of a caper. So it's pretty, it's it's a really interesting watch. Um, It's kind of hard to get through at first because it is very different uh, than Miyazaki's takes, but then you kind of see some of Miyazaki's style come in, uh, like, uh, maybe even a third into the series. So I would recommend that. That's Lupin the Third Part One because there's many other sequel series, but that's the first ever anime series of Lupin the Third. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. I'll definitely check that out. And I, I actually didn't realize that they were different characters. I thought they were the same character. So it, it's it's funny because like you mentioned the James Bond connection. It reminds me a little bit of James Bond Jr., which is like this really weird animated show from the 90s that I sort of grew up watching. And like that character isn't, even though his name is James Bond Jr., he's not actually the son of James Bond. I believe he's his, his nephew, which never made any sense to me at all. Um, but yeah, it sounds like uh, like Lupin the Third is maybe um, more in that in that relation to uh Arsene Lupin so anyway um that I, I watched that on uh Turner Classic Movies so I'm not sure if that's streaming anywhere but like I said I wouldn't really recommend that one um Castle Cagliostro as far as I know is still streaming on Netflix and that one definitely gets a recommendation uh finally for me I watched The Trip to Greece which is streaming on Hulu right now uh this came out earlier this year and is supposed to be the final entry in uh the Trip series which has uh I believe four entries in it now 
Um, Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden star in these. Michael Winterbottom uh, directed all of the entries. Um, they actually started out as TV shows and then were sort of like cut down into movies. And I believe the same thing happened with The Trip to Greece. Uh, I, I mean, I, I love this stuff. Like the, these movies just feed them to me all day. I, I love, I can't get enough of them. They're all almost exactly the same, uh, but I, I just love the vibe so much. Uh, I, I could listen to these guys just riff and joke and do imitations and, you know, watch them travel around the world, these gorgeous vistas and, and incredible uh, you know, environments and stuff like that and, and eat at like these world-class restaurants. And like, there's a little bit of, um, you know, the food porn kind of uh, aspect in there where the camera sort of goes into the, the kitchens of these places and you get to see a little bit of the the preparations of the food that they're being served. Um, and uh, but most of it is just about the relationship between these two guys and just, you know, them driving across various countries and just <laughs> so like constantly just in a one giant never ending riff off. Um, the only thing I will say that I, I was a little disappointed by with this movie was the ending. I thought it was a little bit abrupt and and, you know, if this truly is going to be the final uh, entry in this uh, sort of ongoing uh, experience that's been what 10 years or something in the making. Um, I just thought the ending would have, would have brought things to a little bit more of a, a definitive conclusion. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not quite convinced that the movie hit its, its theme about like uh, aging and, and death and the exploration of, of those two things as, you know, as seen through Coogan and Bryden. I'm not really sure that the movie really like stuck the landing because it just sort of, uh, comes to an end and I, I didn't, I don't know th there's some cross cutting that's going on between these two guys. And, and I guess we're supposed to get that, you know, Coogan's going through one thing, Brian's going through something else, but they they'll have this bond as, as friends for, for all time. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I sort of was left wanting more. And part of me is like, I, that's a good way to go out. But then, narratively i was a little uh underwhelmed ht I, I remember that you saw this earlier this year what did you think about the ending of the movie i guess without like you know uh, overtly spoiling it i do think it was abrupt and it was it did feel somewhat out of place with the more leisurely um flow of the rest of the film but it's it added an air of melancholy which we hadn't seen in the movies in a while and i liked that added depth to it i kind of agree that they don't they don't quite execute it that well um but you know, it worked for me. I think that that kind of abrupt ending is the only way to really end something that is as meandering and um, casual and like uh, as this. Um, yeah. And you know, it's it's not the before trilogy like that exploration of aging and and um, life, but it is kind of. Um, I think it achieves like a that the same thing as before trilogy in a different way, and um, I I think that. While the ending does feel abrupt, I think it does lead up to it uh, to a certain degree, especially just like in the, um, the sort of comfortable, like the, the comfort that both Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon kind of show and being in like their own skin in a way, except like, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I think that it works for me. I can kind of understand where it's abrupt, but it I think it fits, fits the, yeah. the film. The last thing I'll say about it real quick is um, I was very, very curious to see how they addressed... Uh, what happens at the end of the trip to Spain, which is the most recent one, the third entry, which that movie has a totally insane ending. <laughs> and I was, 
I was very, very curious to see how this movie addressed it. And it's basically like hand waved away in one line of dialogue and they don't actually explore it in any sort of meaningful way, which I guess is appropriate. It's sort of, you know, that that's not really what these movies are about. Are about. It's more about just watching these guys, uh, you know, joke their way across different countries. So um, I didn't expect something huge, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I, it was just another another laugh out loud laugh out loud moment for me was just hearing like oh you're really not going to address this in any sort of significant way are you okay that's fine uh so that's the trip to greece and it's streaming on hulu right now you mentioned before the memento dvd i'm wondering i remember buying that and they had the special feature which using the branching feature of dvd which was like like leading tech at the time <laughs> you could watch the story told in chronological order did you ever try doing that I have that special edition of the the DVD and I was like sort of flipping through some of it, um, you know, like <laughs> flicking through those menus. And it's just so weird to like think that this was a thing that, you know, was, was a major deal at the time. Um, I don't know if I've ever actually stumbled across the the chronological virgin, version or if I even ever knew how to unlock that thing. So um, and maybe it's not even on the version of the DVD that I have. I don't know. But uh no, I've, I've never, I've never watched it that way, and I don't really think that would be. Um, I, I think it sort of like defeats the point of the, of the movie <laughs> to watch it that way. But, uh, but yeah, if it's there and and somebody's interested in that, uh, go for it. <laughs> well, young Peter was so excited to see that feature, and then I watched it and I realized how it doesn't work in chronological order. Like it, <laughs> it, 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 it is, it is not meant to be experienced that way. I'm yeah. actually wondering if like Christopher Nolan had input in releasing it that way because i feel like he would be against that today yeah it does sound like something that he wouldn't want out there but maybe he didn't have enough power in his career at that time to stop it or something yeah uh hd you finally saw a class action park i did i was intrigued by all the rave reviews on this podcast and i decided to watch it with Uh, My roommate and her boyfriend, both of whom this movie seems specifically catered to, my roommate is from New Jersey, and her boyfriend is a lawyer. (laughs) So we had a lot of fun watching this movie together, and um, it's – it was definitely a a film that, like, set my anxiety on high, and uh, just seeing everything (sighs) unfold in the way it did and how – how this could have existed because this was a little bit before my time and I hadn't really heard of Action Park until um, I guess this documentary really. And I think some people like had talked about it, but it was just amazing to me that this could have existed as it did. And you know, that the, the creators of the park could like just basically bully governments into not paying attention to them by annoying them to, to out of litigation. And so it, it, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it was a really um, compelling documentary. Uh, I do think that the end is really weird. As uh, I think Ben and Jacob have both said, it's yeah. a, a weird tonal misstep for a movie that I think struggles with whether to condemn uh, the people behind it as like full on scammers or to just enjoy like bask in the nostalgia of such a strange uh contraption like miracle of a park to exist I, miracle sounds like a it's too generous of a word but you know it's 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 a it's a oddity for sure oh yeah no no it, it's a really good movie i agree the, the 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 last shots of the movie i'm like what is going on here who thought this was a good idea but yeah uh what else have you been watching 
I watched a zombie film called Alive that recently hit Netflix. It's a another South Korean zombie movie, uh, this time starring Burning Star Yu Ah In, uh, and it's I was not really expecting much. I feel like zombie fatigue was just starting to hit South Korea as it had done for the U.S. many years ago, um, but uh, especially because. Um, despite me liking somewhat uh, the Train to Busan follow-up uh, peninsula, it was a little bit of a disappointment. But uh, Alive is actually kind of a blast. It takes place in an apartment complex where a video game live streamer who you are in plays uh, becomes trapped inside his apartment during an outbreak of the zombie disease. And he's forced to take refuge and hide in that apartment uh, as his supplies start to dwindle and he waits for rescue. And this is actually more of a survivalist thriller than a zombie movie like the zombies itself themselves we know how they act they you know react to noise they react to light etc so it doesn't really put as much focus on the zombies as it does this character's attempts to stay alive and keep his rations there and uh, try to find means of escape and eventually uh, meet another apartment dweller across the complex from him and they start to communicate and it's a really fun sort of like um taught small compact uh zombie movie and i think that by leaning into its survivalist survival uh drama more it really works and kind of overcomes its weird gimmick so it's actually called hashtag alive because a lot of the um the focus is also on the this live streamer you know uh, taking to social media to plea for help and using his various technologies which end up being you know, very useless in an apocalyptic situation. And uh, so it kind of veers on just trying to talk about technology too much, but it works uh, for like this sort of social media age zombie thriller. And uh, it makes it also um, quite relatable during pandemic times. Like it basically is about living in isolation, (laughs) trying to not be a fall victim to a deadly pandemic just outside your door. So... (laughs) It's it's quite it's really timely and it's um it's a fun watch despite some of that you know timeliness and prescient the prescient nature of it but um, I recommend it that's hashtag alive on Netflix. Uh, I also watched um, an anime film on Netflix called Children of the Sea. This one I had heard of because it comes from G Kids, which is a big sort of anime distributor in the States, and they are in charge of all the Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki stuff. And there is actually a Ghibli connection with this film with a composer, Joe Hisaishi, who has composed for uh, nearly every single Ghibli film, at least every single Miyazaki film. And um, uh, it's it's all right. It's kind of, it's a very baffling film. It basically takes a premise that we've seen before um, in both like Ghibli films and other sort of anime slice of life slash fantasy films that have to deal with water, myth like waterly aquatic creatures. Uh, it follows a young girl who uh, is the daughter of an aquarium employee and meets there a young boy named Umi who 
was raised by sea creatures with his foster brother and has thus spent much of his life underwater, which has significantly shortened his lifespan. And she being drawn to this boy and the sea starts to explore the underwater world um, in its great depths. And uh, as she does, a the aquatic animals ready for this mysterious festival that could change the fabric of reality. And um, it feels very much like this uh, film is... Uh, tries to equate that whole, you know, idea that the there are so many more stretches of the ocean unexplored than space, and it kind of combines that uh, awe of the cosmos with the awe of the ocean, and uh, it descends into this one of the weirdest third acts I've ever seen, not only in anime movies but in film in general. It's very, very bizarre and incomprehensible. <laughs> But it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful anime films I've ever seen. I can't say it's exactly my style of anime because it's done in that sort of hyper-realistic way, an artful way where it kind of lacks emotion. Um, and everything is just so beautiful and almost stoic that it holds you at a distance. And it feels, you might say, shallow. Okay, no laughs there. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyways, it's um, it is a beautifully made film, uh, really artfully rendered. Uh, I would recommend it to people who are feeling adventurous in terms of anime and maybe enjoyed the more cosmic side of your name and want a whole movie of that. <laughs> so uh, that's Children of the Sea now streaming on Netflix. So the last thing I watched is a film that has been a topic of a lot of internet outrage recently. And I I feel like I need to um, sort of state a little precursor here and maybe a, a warning, uh, mostly for you, Peter. I hope that this, me talking about this film doesn't, mm. um, you know, incur any more outrage our way, but it likely will. <laughs> And I'm talking, of course, about the French coming-of-age film Cuties um, in French, Mignon. And it's directed by Maimouna Decore. And uh, the online outrage I'm speaking of is the controversy that um, basically went viral after the misguided marketing attempt from Netflix, which showed... Uh, the characters of the movie, which are all like 11 year old girls uh, in these dance outfits, which are quite provocative looking and in, you know, uh, poses that are also provocative. And um, this has provoked quite a wave of backlash from mostly conservatives, but also a lot of people who tend to have knee jerk reactions to this kind of uh, sexualization um, and, which I'll go into a little bit later and um, has the cuties in, in the end has become the sort of straw man for um, oh, critics who like to accuse Hollywood of being a, like a, a, like a pedophile sort of ring. And, you know, it's, it is a movie that is deliberately uncomfortable, but the marketing that Netflix took definitely takes what this movie is trying to say about sexualization of young girls out of context in the worst way, so much so that any clips, any scenes from this film can be seen as endorsing this thing when in fact it's not. I just want to say first before I go into full detail, depiction does not equal endorsement. 
Feel it? Like that needs to be repeated. Depiction does not equal <laughs> endorsement. So Cuties follows 11-year-old Amy, uh, a young Senegal immigrant who is struggling to adjust to her new life in France, uh, raised in a strict Muslim household and whose family is uh, meeting all sorts of troubles right now, especially with her father and her mother. And uh, she soon becomes drawn to a group of rebellious crop top wearing girls in her class who call themselves the cuties and their dance troupe that are determined to win a local dance contest. It's a very simple premise. But the problem is that they, um, you know, in trying to prove that they're grown up and can fend for themselves, they end up tr- aping these uh, moves and sexualized uh, behavior that they see on the internet and society around them and thus creates the images that we've seen that have drawn so much ire. And the director, uh, who is uh, actually drawn from her own life experiences and observations and is a Senegalese immigrant as well, um, uses this to comment on the sexualization of young girls and the pressure that they feel um, to act sexual when it's something that they clearly don't understand, despite, you know, pop, like pursing their lips and popping their hips. And it's, uh, it's something that I think the film deliberately, you know, make tries to make you uncomfortable, and in a sense, turns a lens back on the audience and makes them grapple with how pre-adolescent girls are so easily and early sexualized. So it's, it's a film that in any other circumstances, wouldn't have accrued so much outrage as it would have. It probably would have been buried on Netflix as a hidden gem that debuted at Sundance, took some critical raves, uh, some awards. But here, of course, it's been, you know, held as this example of how, you know, film and Hollywood is just the uh, dangerous predators against our children uh, when this is not the case at all. It's a film that is very outrightly saying that, girls should not be sexualized and shouldn't be pressured to be sexualized in the way that they are because society. So that's my uh, overall commentary on cuties. I hope that those who are criticizing it, you know, and claim that it is doing these things that they think it's doing, watch it first because it is a lovely film and it's a great debut from Decore. And you should give it a chance before calling it like the spawn of the, of Satan or something. So I hope I hope that was, that was a, a clear enough sort of a rundown of everything that happened with cuties. I'm I'm curious about this now, but I'm almost like nervous to watch it because I don't want to have a reaction to it that people will criticize. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, it like. I don't know. It, it seems to me from your description, I have not seen it. I've only seen that one photo of like the girls like doing kissy faces at each other mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, it's I think the lead image that they show everywhere. Uh, it sounds like they're not trying to exploit the girl like they're using this. It, I don't know. It's exploring the idea of I don't know. It, that seems so weird that like there's this whole cancel culture around this movie. If it's exploring the idea of exploitation of, I don't know. Well, you know, know. people love taking things out of context and only showing (laughs) something that makes it seem like a hideous piece of pedophile culture or something. I don't know. That's something I made up. That's not something that exists. Um, I mean, 
So. I mean, Ben watched Zodiac, so he definitely supports serial killers. So exactly, that's how 100%. things work. Yep. <laughs> okay, let's move on. I, I'm probably gonna get people mad with that one. I'm sorry. Uh, I have not even seen the movie, so I I should not speak. I do not know anything. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, when I was in Vegas, I ate some good things there and some good things on the way. I made a stop in Glendora at this place called Donut Man. And this place is famous. It's world famous. It's a donut store that they they're famous for their strawberry donuts. They have this. It's basically a glazed donut that has no hole that they cut in half. And then they pour in like strawberry preserves and some like slices of strawberries. And I've, I've seen this. I've read reviews about this, like Jordan Gold has written a review. Like I've seen this like anytime that any place anybody talks about like places around L.A., that are like the best of anything. People talk about this place place being like the best donuts. And for whatever reason, I've never gone, uh, but we were on our way to Las Vegas. So we stopped there and I'm here to report that the donuts aren't good. No, they're, they're actually amazing. They're the best donuts I've ever had. Uh, we, again, we did a video for this on ordinary adventures. I'll link that in the show notes. But uh, if you are in Southern California and you have not had donut man, take the trip out to Glendora. It is, I mean, actually it's kind of close to Disneyland. So if you're taking the trip to Disneyland, maybe make a stop in Glendora uh, for Donut Man. And there's actually, they, I think they just built a new one in downtown Los Angeles at the Grand Central Market. So there's also one closer to downtown LA as well. But uh, it, they are so good. I can't, I, I cannot express to you how good these donuts are. Um, Okay, while in Vegas, we ate notably at two different places. We ate at uh, this place called Nacho Daddy, which is uh, part of like the Planet Hollywood uh, Casino, I think. Um, it's a place famous for their nachos and famous for their margaritas. They've been voted, I think, best margarita for the last like five years in Vegas, uh, which is a place that's known for their their alcohol. So we had to try them out. Uh, we've recorded a video. It's coming out. Uh, next week but uh to give you the brief the nachos were great the margaritas were amazing uh we did not try the scorpion shot which is another thing that they're known for which is apparently is like i don't know some kind of tequila with like a dead scorpion in it and then you drink the scorpion shot and you chew on the dead scorpion i did not do that but that, but you can also get that there at Nacho Daddy. Um, the other place we stopped at uh, was at Bally's. Outside of Bally's, they have this like whole court of uh, stores and restaurants. And one of them is called Dirt Dog, which I didn't know. But apparently there's one in L.A. So I could have just went to the one in downtown Los Angeles. But anyways, there's this place called Dirt Dog. It is in front of Bally's, like I said. And they have they're famous for like their hot dogs and fries. I, I forget what we got. What, what do we get? I'll put the menu right here. I got the flaming dog. This is a Nathan's hot dog wrapped in the center in, in center cut bacon, hot Cheetos, Takis mix, uh, grilled corn, chipotle lime, mayo, cilantro, harbinara. How, how do you pronounce that? Harbinara sauce and uh bacon bits on top. So, it was like incredible. It was the best hot dog I've ever had. Uh, Kitra, I think, had like a 
something that had like french fries and pastrami and stuff on top of it like the hot dogs there are like incredible so if you're in downtown los angeles or if you're in vegas i would also say hit up dirt dog uh, a video on that also coming next week uh brad what have you been eating Hmm. I, I want to try that. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? I feel like every other male in their 30s is playing 
uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 plus 2, which is the not remaster, but top to bottom remake of the Tony Hawk games from 1999 and 2000. And this this is an incredible package. It's 40 bucks for probably two of the best video games ever made, <laughs> uh, but polished and fine-tuned for a modern audience. And I'm not a big skateboarding guy. I can't even stand on a skateboard. I don't watch skateboarding. I can't tell you anything about skateboarding beyond Tony Hawk being a guy who's good at it. Uh, but what's brilliant about these games back then and what's brilliant about this one now is how it transforms the act of skateboarding into essentially an action game. It's about reflexes and doing impossible, exciting things as opposed to simulating the act of skateboarding. It's not a sports game. It is a puzzle action exploration game. And it's it plays so well. It's so exciting. And after the Tony Hawk games really did fall apart <laughs> over the decades as the original teams stopped making them and people stopped losing the feel for them and what made them special. Uh, the company that remade this, Vicarious Visions, uh, they really tapped into why people fell in love with these games to begin with and why they were remarkable then and remarkable now. And I can't stop playing it. I'm, I'm worried I'm going to run out of it. And I want more. <laughs> That's Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2, available in all the usual suspects. I'm playing on Xbox One where it looks great. Uh, okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Peter. Peter. Uh, Jacob. Monday. See you on Monday. No, well, Peter, you weren't here last week. You you missed all the action last week. You missed all the water cooler. What a very upsetting what, what thing is, to have happened. What does that mean? It, it means that I need to do double the entries from a gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, repost, quistic quips, caustic quips, I'm sorry, and impolite put-downs. Oh, boy. So... I've, wrote, I've opened it up toward a section that I don't think I've found before because it's near the very back and it's only a page and a half long. This is the writer's section. The, the, the writer's section. Uh, Peter, he's one author who's sure to be flooded with pan mail. Ah. Ah. Uh, Chris, Chris, he writes books nobody will read and checks nobody will cash. Wow, this might be too close to home, Jacob. <laughs> yeah. Uh, HT, she wanted to be a novelist badly, and she's achieved that ambition. She's a bad novelist. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, ben, Ben, his story has as much action as a snake's hips. Brad. His, pre- his preface states that his characters bear no resemblance to any person living or dead. That's precisely what's wrong with it. <laughs> uh, back to Peter, because we're doing double. Wait, wait what? <laughs> I warned you, Peter. I, I, I thought we were done. No, I warned you. We're doing double since you weren't here last week. They call Peter the pharmacist. Every book he writes is a drug on the market. Wait. They call, no. they call Peter the pharmacist. <laughs> Every book he writes is a drug on the market. I, uh, yeah, don't get it. Uh, yeah. They call Peter the pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> Every book he writes is a drug on the market. Yeah. Good. All right, uh, Chris, 
He claims he reaches thousands of readers. Good thing they can't reach him. I mean, that's true. Wow. Uh, HT, as a mystery novel, it's just a run of the morgue. Oh, I actually like that, run of the morgue. Ben, reading his novel is like eating an artichoke. You have to go through so much to get so little. <laughs> and uh, and, and Sapien didn't like artichokes. And Brad, his book is bound to be a best smeller. <laughs> I'm so glad we're going out on that one. <laughs>